welcome back to Tuesday at Dobbs's. Thank you so much everyone for getting in touch. Please do carry on to do so. If you want to email with a longer story, you can do so at hi at tuesdayatdobbs.com. I've also got an Instagram page, Tuesday underscore at underscore Dobbs. And of course, leave a comment below. Let me know your thoughts on what's been discussed. Two days out of this past week, I was riding a Royal Enfield Classic 500. It's one of my favorite bikes, although when it was sold up to about two years ago, it must have been one of the worst new bikes on the market. It was a 2018 model and it was cutting out in the rain. I haven't experienced that since my 2002 carburetted Suzuki Bandit. Just that feeling of getting up to a traffic light and wondering if the bike will be able to pull off or if it will just die. I died at a traffic light. Well, the, the bike died at a traffic light. People tooting behind me, me desperately trying to start it. It gave me flashbacks as to what it was like riding these older, often carburetted bikes and how much better new bikes are to live with on a consistent basis. And I now know in my mind, if I'm ever looking for a new motorbike, even if I'm getting a rental bike, there'll be two questions that I ask. Number one, is there an aftermarket exhaust on it? If so, that's okay, so long as it's below a certain amount of decibels, because if it gets too loud, it, like the Royal Enfield Classic 500, totally destroys my experience. I was riding up a hill in Bali to get home a few days ago, and I had to push it over about three to 4,000 revs, and the ear grating sound of pushing that bike over three to 4,000 revs, for one, it meant I'm still partially deaf even five days later, but secondly, it's such an unpleasant sound. I was desperately trying to keep it at about 2,000 revs, so riding at about 25 miles an hour. I'm also on a Yamaha NMAX, which for some unknown reason, someone's put race suspension on. So in the future, no race suspension, no sports suspension, and no aftermarket exhausts if they're too loud, and certainly no, no bike which has had the baffer removed, because loud exhausts mean that you can't ride for any given length of time. It's too painful. Right, a rant over, let's get down to it. Jordan in Norwich. Freddy, I've got a Kawasaki Z300 that hasn't been serviced, minus an oil change and chain maintenance, in around 7,000 miles. It now sits at 12,000 miles, and I've been told when inquiring at several garages and dealers that it now needs a full service, and this includes the dreaded valve clearances. I've been quoted by several different garages for this, and they've all quoted between five to six hundred pounds. This seems ridiculous an amount for a bike service, considering I could get a full service on my Jaguar XF for around about the same price or perhaps cheaper. So my question to you is this, how important is it getting the valve clearances done? Is it really worth spending six hundred pounds or should I just ignore it and do a basic service? E Jordan, I, I speak from two sides of this. You can class me as speaking as someone from experience or someone speaking not from experience. And here is the reason. I've owned five bikes. I have never once in 12 years done the... Uh, I'm just looking at it now. What's it called? The, uh, the balancing. I've gone completely blank. 
quoted five to six hundred pounds. Valve clearances, valve clearances. I've never once done it. I remember when I bought my Bonneville, I thought this will be uh, a, a real proper bike I'm going to buy. So I'm going to make sure that I get one with the full service history. And I think the valve clearances on the Bonneville need to be done at 21,000 miles. So I religiously checked buying Bonnevilles that either were below 21,000 miles, because I knew this was a huge expense, I think six to 800 pounds for this, or I was going to buy a Bonneville that had had the valve clearance checks done. But my bike's now on 38,000 miles and I bought it at 12,000 miles and I never had the valve clearance is done. Because when it gets down to it, I know this is pathetic, this will hugely divide opinion, and I welcome all opinion, including those saying this is ridiculous. But when it gets down to it, I don't want to spend 700 pounds on valve clearances for my Bonneville, so I've just never done it. And to the best of my knowledge, my Bonneville still runs fine. I'm opening this up to anyone who thinks this is good or bad. What are your thoughts with regards to valve clearances. Is it an essential thing that you should have done? Is it something actually that's relatively easy that you can do yourself? Or should you always, always make sure that you stick to the valve clearances schedule? Is it an essential part of motorcycle maintenance? Because you're right, Jordan, it's eye-wateringly expensive. I'll keep you posted from my side if anything happens to the Bonneville, because I'm now 17,000 miles over that valve clearance check. No issues so far. Uh, I really open that up to anyone who's got experiences on that. I'd find it fascinating to hear from you. Let me know your thoughts. But Jordan, from my side, ignorance is bliss. I just never do it. Moving on, Freddie. Helmet communications. Senna or Cardo? Mesh or Bluetooth? Google? and Siri. It's so confusing, but what to buy? All I really want is something that will let me listen to music and quality podcasts, of course, occasionally interrupted by Google telling me where to go, but which also lets me voice control my phone without having to jab at buttons stuck on my head, which is those little cardo things, they look like, and in fact, I'm quoting here, oh, and why do they all have to be so wedgy? I know retro's cool, but it's 60s retro that's cool. Not looking like I've stuck a TVR, uh, a TR7, sorry, on the side of my helmet. Alex, PGS, Alex, PGS, Alex, PS, are you doing the DGR this year? Alex, I hope to do the DGR this year if I'm back in time. Okay, I had a look at this, intercom systems. This is getting more and more popular. And I find this really difficult because a lot of the time I like to keep things as simple as possible, but these Bluetooth systems are raved about. There are a lot of people who, who think these are completely essential for biking, so I definitely get the appeal. And the truth is, if I were to try a helmet or a system with Bluetooth, I, I may well end up buying one. There are two options here, Alex. You either buy a helmet with all of the Bluetooth systems set up. So you buy a helmet, for example, the, the Senna Striker. Let me put the details here, for about 459 pounds, but that's everything built in. So you've bought a helmet and you don't have to worry about retro wiring anything into it. It all comes included. If I get this up, let's have a look at this. Senna 
Helmet. Bluetooth, Bluetooth connectivity all built in. You can go to Helmet City and look at this. It's even got an LED tail light. It's ECE rated, so the highest safety rating. It's got Harman Kardon speakers, so really high quality speakers, so the audio quality will be brilliant. And you don't have anything to obtuse sticking out of your helmet. I think you have buttons on the side, but it's all beautifully, beautifully layered into your helmet, so it does look quite slick. It's not the most beautiful ultra retro looking helmet, but the fact that you don't have to deal with wiring, I think makes it a fairly interesting proposition. Then you could spend two to 300 pounds getting all of the wiring sticking it onto the side of the helmet, but you could have a retro helmet and you still have the wedgy 1970s looking Triumph TR7, for example, on the side of your helmet. What do people think about Bluetooth sets? What's the best option? Go out there and buy a Senna or buy a helmet with everything built in. I think in the future, helmets with built-in Bluetooth speakers, etc., etc., will be the future. So let me know anyone with experience on that. I would probably, if it were me, Alex, I think, I think I'd go for the Senna and get an all built-in helmet just for that ease of use. I think they're also wireless as well, so you just put the back of your helmet onto the charging pad and it will charge like that. So that will save a lot of hassle with regards to removing batteries at the end of the day and hooking up wiring, etc., etc. Anything to make biking more simple, I think is something to be celebrated. I move on, thank you, Alex. And DGR, if I do it, it will be, I think, London or Ipswich. Moving on to Rob. Rob from the US. Uh, this is with regards to Harleys. I found this fascinating. Freddie, Harley-Davidson purchase quest update from this side of the pond. I love, or my love of Harley motorcycles tradition, high quality workmanship and materials, prompting a spring purchase has hit the skids. Post many hours spent with several Harley-Davidson dealers uh, and sales reps to date, I'm saddened to report the US dealers I've, I visited have exhibited intense selling price greed, adding to many or adding many thousands of pounds to bike prices, regardless of if it's new or used. It's just beyond what my common sense can endure. One Massachusetts Harley dealer advertised a used 2018 sports glide. The sales rep proudly stated that she wanted 25,000 pounds. My reply, for a five-year-old bike that sold back then in the teens. So this five-year-old bike that's now $25,000, that was available back in the teens. So let's say five years ago or so at 18, 19K, that is just incredible. Incredible that you can have a markup of five to 6,000 on a bike that's five to six years old. Another Seacoast dealership in New Hampshire made my partner and I wait 45 minutes just to get an overly inflated, unfair price on a used Harley. What's the saying? It's a free market. It's no wonder that Tesla sells direct to consumers. Harley are an American lifestyle brand, not the latest designer bling. 
Here's to all the Harley riders who identify with quality and tradition. Harley seeks high-income earners pursuing status over what we long-time Harley fans know are incredible American working-class machines ridden by our fathers and grandfathers. Happy spring to all. And P.S. It's no wonder Royal Enfield is continuing to increase their customer base and sales numbers. Regards, Rob. The thing that amazes me, Rob, Harley-Davidson's are no better value in the UK than they are in Europe. Thanks for that. <coughs> Moving on to Ramon. 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 Freddie, the thing that fascinates me about Harley is that they don't seem to truly want to commit to the older or younger generations. Their innovative bikes are weak in appeal to any one group, and they're unwilling to recreate the classics in an, in an electronic form to avoid angering the old heads. I just want an electric electroglide. Ramon, you have exactly hit the nail on the head for me here because, and this isn't Harley specific. If I'm looking at an electric motorbike, whether it's Triumph or Harley, I want an electric Triumph Bonneville and I want an electric Triumph, uh, electric Harley Davidson Street Bob. I want to feel everything that I feel now from those brands just with an electric motor. If I buy a Harley-Davidson, I don't want a sports bike in the Livewire specifically. And that's nothing against the Livewire. But if I want a street bob, I want an electric street bob. And if I want a super sports bike, that's fine. I want an electric super sports bike. It's just like with Triumph as well. They've, they've got the TF1, I think it is, the electric bike. And that's great, but that is a, an electric Triumph Speed Triple in essence. But what about an electric Bonneville T100 that surely, surely everyone wants? And just like Harley-Davidson, it would appeal to a hugely wider audience if they could bring out a retro, a classic, one of the classic Harley-Davidsons. Someone told me a few months ago, Freddie, the reason they don't do electric versions of the retros of the Harley-Davidsons and the Triumph is because if they were to bring out an electric Triumph Bonneville, for example, then you would have a straight shootout. Triumph Bonneville internal combustion and Triumph Bonneville electric. And people would be comparing like and like. And people would see that still, as it stands at the moment, the electric Bonneville just doesn't stack up to the internal combustion engine Bonneville. So these big dealers are still trying to just stay away from having a, a direct shootout electric versus internal combustion engine bike. And that's why the likes of Harley and Triumph are doing this. They're separating it. I'll be interested to see how long that can last for. I move on. Freddie, I'm an Australian and I've been riding for five and a half years. I started on a 250cc Honda VTR because of our restrictions on learner rider big bikes. I got my full license and had to go on my riding buddy's Triumph Daytona. Oh, well, I was blown away. Blown away by the speed and the responsiveness of this bike compared to my carburetted 250. And I was convinced to upgrade to a big bike. I opted for a 2014 Triumph Street Triple, similar to my mate's Daytona, but a bit more sensible for street riding. 
I was content just doing commutes and weekend rides on my big bike until I did a track day with my mate and I became completely hooked on sports riding. After half a dozen or so track days, I could feel my performance on the track improving massively, but at the same time, my zest for street riding seemed to be diminishing. After pushing the limits, uh, uh, sorry, after pushing to the limits of my ability and speed on the track, riding on the road, it almost felt boring in terms of lower speed and scarier due to the road hazards not present on a track. Around about this time, I rode with my girlfriend to up for the first time and she mentioned that she was interesting, interested in riding a small bike to and from work. So she got her learner's license and bought a 125 Honda CB commuter bike for her to learn on. I absolutely fell in love with this bike though. It was a beaten up Uber Eats delivery bike that needed some love, so I ended up overhauling the sprockets, chain, and replacing a lot of bits and bobs. The bike was slow, but it was so incredibly fun to ride, easy to navigate around car parks, and most importantly, incredibly cheap to register and insure. It's about 500 Aussie dollars a year for full registration and comprehensive insurance, compared to 1,006 hundred Aussie dollars for the triumph. I often hear from New Zealanders, I think Canadians as well, and Aussies, about the gigantic costs of, of insurance and also the gigantic costs of just registering a bike in these countries. It can go into the thousands of pounds a year to give some relativity to that. I think the tax on my Triumph Bonneville is about £110 sterling a year. That means I'm allowed to ride it on any roads and we don't have toll roads in England. So in essence, it's free to ride anywhere, bar a few city centres if you want the, the emissions charges. And it is about £70 to £80 pounds a year to insure. So insurance and the tax to ride it every year is around about something like £180 pounds a year. To be fair to the UK, it's actually pretty good value at owning, owning and running, whether it's a car or a motorbike. I mean, my annual tax for my Fiat 500 in the UK is £30 a year, and the insurance is around about £120, £130 a year. So the Fiat is actually more economical to ride or to drive than a, a motorbike. I continue... Uh, became totally hooked on riding. Okay, Hazard Roads, uh, CB, Honda CB, commuter bike for her to learn on, and it's a beaten up Uber Eats delivery bike that costs around about 500 Aussie dollars a year. While I still have the Triumph, I mostly just use it for track days and the occasional long weekend ride. I know that I use the little Honda for pretty much every other ride that I do, run to the shops, commuting to work, or even just a quick zip around the neighborhood. A small practical commuter is getting more use and giving me more joy than my sports bike. I've even found myself contemplating selling both bikes and buying a more modern 125cc bike like the Honda Super Cub or CT125. We don't have the Honda Dax in Australia that both my girlfriend and I can ride. I do still love 
track riding, so maybe I should just ditch the overheads of registration and insurance and turn the Triumph into an unregistered track bike that I can take to the track on a trailer. Would love to hear your thoughts on the matter, Freddie. Are smaller bikes more fun and more compatible with modern life than big sports bikes? Phil, Phil from Australia. Yeah, Phil, this is, this is something that I had to figure out in my mind with regards to, to super naked bikes, and that's why I went to the Bonneville, because it's ease of use. A lot of the time, the bike that is easiest to use, most accessible, is the one that we use most. In fact, that's always the case. If I look at having the, the Royal Enfield Classic 500 outside my apartment here in Bali compared to the Yamaha NMAX 155, I found myself by the end dreading jumping on the Royal Enfield Classic 500 purely because of that exhaust. If you have a standard exhaust on it, I would always pick the Classic 500. But a bike has to be easily accessible for us to be jumping on as a day-to-day -day bike. We can have a weekend toy if we can afford it, like a sports bike or a massive cruiser. But as an everyday bike that you just want to jump on and go to the shops, then simple bikes are so much easier. Whether it's a Royal Enfield Classic 350, I find my Bonneville to be that as well. It's the kind of bike that I enjoy just jumping on and off. But once a bike gets too, too aggressive and too focused in a certain area, it often changes the way we look at a bike and it becomes a bike more for a special occasion ride. So you push the bike out and you take it out specifically to go for a ride, as opposed to using it as a mode of transport, going down to the shops, popping out for a coffee. So Phil, I, I hugely see the appeal of getting these small bikes. Monica, for example, wants a Vespa. I would quite like a Vespa. I would also consider a Honda Cub just like you've got because they are in essence just as fun as big bikes. And I can see where you're going with it, Phil. You may well be the kind of rider who just prefers to have a little Honda Super Cub for whizzing around the streets and then keep a bike as a track bike. I know that track riding is, is not a cheap pastime and that's often what puts a lot of people off. But if you do have the money and you can afford track days and you find them more fun than, than just riding out and about to the shops on a bigger bike, then I would suggest in your position, yes, I would turn your Triumph into a track bike, get a Honda Super Cub, and that would cover all of your needs. That's why I actually went to, to modern classic bikes, Phil, because I found them to be fun at 20 and 30 miles an hour, just like the Honda Cub is. For me, it gives the same element of fun. Uh, for example, a, a Royal Enfield Interceptor and a Honda Cub. The magic is they're fun at low speeds, so they're fun going to the shops, they're fun going to get a coffee. Whereas the bigger bikes, the more powerful bikes, the super naked, they're not as fun at slow speeds. You have to be doing those faster speeds to make them fun. Especially as you're now a track rider, Phil, I would say go for the super cub. I think you won't regret it if you keep your triumph for track days. Right, I move on. This is in relation to the armored gear discussion where someone asked me what my thoughts were on armoured gear. I had a lot of input on this, but I, I want to share just a small selection of thoughts on this. I begin with Asmodeus. Freddie, I have a similar view to yourself with regards to protective gear. If I'm going out on a ride 
I will always wear full protective gear. That's stealth gear as I ride a retro bike. But if I'm just popping up to the shop, then I purchased a light, thin, A-rated Harrington jacket to pop on with my helmet. I've got an electric scooter that can easily do 30 miles an hour and regularly did that on a pedal bike in days gone by. I've come off at those speeds, around about 30 miles an hour, and it is not fun, I must say. But we're talking cuts and bruises here and not coming off at 70 miles an hour on a superbike. My Yamaha XSR also stops on a sixpence compared to that scooter at 30 miles an hour. My background is in engineering and construction and PPE, that is personal protective equipment, is so important to ensure everybody gets home safe at the end of the day. Death is always a real possibility. In order to make the right call, you carry out a risk assessment and wear the protective equipment that is required for the task. What you don't do is wear full PPE all day, every day. PPE can save your life, but it also can be a hindrance. It's up to all of us to make the right assessment and wear what we feel is appropriate. I personally find hot, heavy gear can be distracting on slower rides and makes me feel uncomfortable. If I feel uncomfortable, I, uh, if I feel comfortable, sorry, I feel happier and more alert. I found the light jacket gives me some protection while allowing me to not get into the gearing up dread when just popping out for 10 minutes. I'll be controversial and say that when carrying out a risk assessment for a ride, I never come to the conclusion that my jaw is tougher than metal or tarmac at any speed at all. Full face for me every time. Asmodeus. Great to hear from you and someone in a, a relative field of work there. And also someone that's come off at about 30 miles an hour. Uh, with regards to full face helmet, this is probably the only area that we do slightly differ because my full face helmet attitude, especially going at low speeds, if, that is, if I were on a bicycle doing bicycle speeds, of course, I, I wouldn't wear a full face helmet. And I have the same attitude with a motorbike. I am very happy wearing an open face helmet on a motorbike if I'm doing well, I could do it at any speed, to be completely honest. I don't want to lie. But certainly around town, open face helmet, bicycle-ish speeds, more than happy to wear an open face. But Asmodeus, great to hear from you. I remember also when I passed my test, I should just say, I couldn't figure out what biking gear to buy. And I ended up buying these huge waterproof over trousers to put over normal jeans because I didn't know what was normal. And I, it was the end of summer and I was just sweltering. I remember I went out to a restaurant and I had my full biking gear on. I had my full normal clothes on, sorry, and then full over biking gear, a bit like wearing ski trousers over jeans, but in 28 degree heat. And I got to the restaurant and I almost collapsed and I thought this cannot be the most sensible way to get around town on a bike because I wouldn't be able to turn up anywhere looking respectful it's completely ridiculous. Obviously things have progressed so much since then, but it's good to get a balance between that protective gear and also feeling comfortable so you can actually enjoy biking. The Missenden Flyer. Freddie, interesting to hear your views on safety gear. I can't argue with your opinion. Personally, I wear gear as much about warmth and keeping dry. I ride mostly in the UK, as well as the looks, safety and comfort. 
actually, Andy, you're not the first person to say this, that they wear the biking gear to keep warm as much as to keep safe because it does give you an extra element of insulation. And especially if you're going at 70 miles an hour. So that wind protection that the biking gear can give is extremely useful. So that's a very good point. I continue, in a similar vein, I'm interested on your thoughts on open face helmets, which I do appear to favor, or which you do appear to favor. I love the feeling of freedom that they give, um, but for me, they only work on slow country lane bimbles. Once I get up to any speed at all, I like a visor and a bit of lower face protection. Discuss. Yes, yes, Andy, I, I largely agree with you with regards to open face helmets. I remember when I, when I passed my test, I, I got, it, in fact, it was a couple of years later, I got an open face helmet and I went on about an hour and a half ride along the M25, which is a big motorway that goes all the way around London. And I thought, this is amazing. Open face helmet on an hour and a half ride one way, hour and a half back way. Oh, open face helmet. It's just the ultimate feeling of freedom. But after about the first 20 minutes, I had got onto the motorway. And what I didn't appreciate is the constant debris and tiny stones flicked up all the time from UK motorways. My face was in agony. And then every so often you get a wasp or a fly that goes in between your helmet and your sunglasses. So I found myself constantly twitching and flinching like that all the time. And I was on the bike, on the motorway, dropped down to about 60 miles an hour, face beetroot because I'd been battered so many times and I was dreading a ride back. And that was the last time I did, at least in the UK, a long ride with an open-faced helmet because it was so unpleasant. But then I'll go to Tenerife and I'll ride for five hours in a row and I'll just wear an open-faced helmet because the roads are so smooth and there are no flies at all in Tenerife. There's also the safety element to it. I, I will agree with you, Andy. If I'm going out, I do feel much, much safer wearing a full face helmet if I'm going 60, 70 miles an hour on a longer trip. So I will also usually wear a full face helmet, but certainly around town, I love the feeling of freedom. If it's 30 miles an hour or so in town, t-shirt, open face helmet, oh, it's a glorious feeling of freedom. I love it. Thank you all for that, hugely appreciated. I move on to Norton. I, I had a bit of a telling off here from, from a couple of people with regards to Norton. I'll share, let me just see if I've saved this. I think I've saved one of these. Uh, yes, I have. So I'll, I'll try and give as broad an opinion here as possible. This is with regards to Norton coming back, really starting to expand out the dealer network. They're built in the UK, and that will mean they're slightly more expensive. So have a listen to a few opinions here. Freddie, I'm afraid I don't share your enthusiasm for Norton's current strategy, which seems to be focused on promoting brand and image over nuts and bolts. The 961 is an absolutely beautiful bike, but based on its spec sheet, it's very poor from them. The epitome of heart over a head purchase. Stewie. And next one from Haxan. 
Freddie, the Norton could be built in my back garden and I wouldn't be spending £17,000 on it. I will never be at a point in my life when that amount of money is available for a motorbike. I move on to another. Because, ah, this is, this is one who, uh, who really didn't agree. Freddie, because one utterly misguided, corrupt, aged playboy, this is with regards to the old owner of Norton. Um, one utterly misguided, corrupt, aged playboy, beep, who should be languishing in jail, destroyed a company as well as a reputation. That does not mean that ridiculous generalizations about company ownership in the UK by British people are in any way justified. It's good that the company now, uh, it's good that the company that now owns Norton has invested in the company and a factory in the UK. You should really just leave it at that, Freddie. This is, this is the argument here, and it's an argument that I think neither side will ever back down from. And I could have shared a, an endless list from this. How valuable is it that Norton is built in the UK? It's, let's say, four to five thousand pounds more to buy a Norton than to buy a Triumph T120. And I would be fascinated with your thoughts on this. A Norton has to be more expensive than a Triumph Bonneville T120, because it's made in England. English salaries and wages are hugely more than in Thailand. And the same goes for Royal Enfield made in India. We have massively higher overheads to make anything in the UK. So it makes complete sense that a Norton must be massively higher or must come in at a massively higher price point. It would be completely impossible for Norton to be sold at 11, 12,000 pounds because we cannot compete with the Thais and the Indians with regards to economies of scale, especially in, in India's point of view, and the cost of, of wages. Think of how much you have to pay in the UK minimum wage compared to over in those countries. Are you willing to pay for a motorbike made in the UK, this Norton, in Norton's case, knowing that you're paying UK salaries? Is it worth it knowing that you're, you're paying for British industry? I get both points. I would very happily buy a Triumph in Thailand, a Royal Enfield from India, and an iPhone made in China. None of that specifically bothers me. But I definitely see the point that if I do want something made in the UK for that UK nostalgia, I'm going to have to pay a huge amount more to be able to get that. It's a bit like the, the tank bag that I shared with Jennifer last week. A few people said to me, Freddie, it's $225. I can find something for under half the price of that. Yes, you can find something for under half the price. But what's the value in getting something handmade in the US? Is that worth nothing at all? I, I get that you can get something cheaper, but sometimes we have to just accept that if you want something specific that's handmade or just made in a certain country, you're going to have to pay for that. I move on. So, oh, I know, in fact, I carry on just a little bit more with Norton, just two more, or just one more. Freddie, the reason that there are no British-owned and run companies is because that they look short-term at getting a return on capital and making a profit to withdraw and not looking long-term at projects and investments. Uh, thank you.
I'll move on now. This is from Luke. Freddie, help me. I'd love your advice and your thoughts. I'm currently looking to purchase a modern retro slash classic motorbike. I've got around £5,000 as a budget, and I'm looking at either a used Triumph Bonneville 865 slash T100 or a Honda CB1100. What do you think would be the best option? Let me put these up here. Triumph Bonneville T100, Honda CB1100. Both of these around about, let's say four and a half to 5K as an entry level here. I currently have a, an FZ6 or an FZR600R. And I'm keen to have a bike in the garage that isn't begging me to ride faster and faster. And I simply, excuse me, and I simply can't say no every time. I'm more of a slower rider that likes to take in the sights. With regards, Luke. Luke, this is, for me, extremely tough because I'm going to put this here as the bike for the week. Honda CB1100. Regular listener, JB, I know he's got a Honda CB1100 RS and he absolutely raves about that bike. These are the unsung heroes within the modern classic space, the Honda CB1100. I can't rave about them enough and I, I have never even ridden one, but every time I see one in the flesh, I think, my Lord, why didn't that sell? Why on earth did that bike not sell? It's got all of the looks. It's got the name. It's a big Honda CB. It doesn't get much cooler than that. Honda CBs, the CB killed off the British biking industry. These are bikes that go all the way back to the 70s. Fantastic heritage with these bikes. But why did no one want this gigantic, beautiful looking Honda CB? They stopped selling them about two, three years ago. And they've got everything. They tick every single box. And they come in at good value. You can get a 10 year old Honda CB1100. I found one on AutoTrader, four and a half thousand pounds. And that comes from a dealer. Now, if you want a Triumph Bonneville 865 or T100, you're looking at very similar money maybe slightly more, coming in at about 5,000 for a 2013 model or so. So they come in at fairly similar prices, if not the Bonneville, slightly more expensive, but you get a lot more for your money, Luke, than you do with the Bonneville. The Bonneville, you're looking at about 65 horsepower, but you're going to get about 90 horsepower with the Honda. The Honda, you have an 1100cc engine, and with the Triumph, you have an 865 to 900cc. But you're not looking specifically for bike to go fast. You're just looking for something you can take in the sights. And both of them, whether it's the Honda or whether it's the Triumph, both of them will be able to do the job extremely well. So Luke, this will come down to your personal preference. Example, I feel some strange, intangible attachment that I cannot explain. I don't know if it's the heritage, I don't know if it's the history but I feel it with Triumph, and that's why I go with Triumph. But that Honda is every single bit as good looking as the Triumph, and every single bit as special. So just go with what 
what your heart points toward, Luke, because you're not going to go wrong with either one. Just go with whatever one makes you more excited. Even though that Honda is more powerful, it still will not be the kind of bike that will make you want to push it. It will still be the kind of bike that you can be enjoy, enjoying the scenery. You could even say that, that that Honda could be a really good mix between a Triumph T120, which is out of your budget, and a Triumph Bonneville T100 865, because this Honda fills the gap. It's got the performance on paper, it's got the specs of that Bonneville T120, but for the price of a T100. So if you look at it from that respect, I would say it's almost at a point where you cannot overlook that Honda. It's a lot of bike for the money. Let me know what you go for, Luke. Moving on to Marco. Marco, uh, hi, Freddie. Where do you stand on pointless but sentimental second bikes? The reason I ask is that my nan and granddad both used 50cc bikes for cheap runarounds when they were younger. The same make and model bikes often come up for sale between 400 pounds to 1,000 pounds. If I did buy one, it would be rarely used, but I long for the sentiment. I'd love to hear your thoughts, regards, in fact, not regards, Marco, regards Daryl. Sorry, Daryl. Daryl, I get this 100%. Really, I do. If I, uh, let's say, for example, my, my dad had an old VW Beetle. I think it must have been from the 60s or 70s. Do I see the appeal of eventually owning one of those one day? Or my granddad, he had a, I think he had an old, what was it? an old, maybe even an old Norton or BSA, and then I think some of my Swedish family we just found out had old Harley Davidsons. Would I like one of those from a sentimental point of view? Yes, definitely I would. But I now know after riding that Royal Enfield Classic 500, I would never actually ride it. If I get to a point where I can have a garage big enough to own a few different vehicles, then I would buy one or some of these vehicles, whether it's a car or motorbike, and I would keep them purely as a piece of art, a beautiful thing to own, to reminisce at, to go out to the garage. You know, this is my dream. If I'm ever successful enough to have a, a beautifully laid out garage just with a few different vehicles there, some cool posters or artwork on the wall, a nice little bar, one of those old Chesterton sofas, and I could just go down there, have a coffee or have a beer, have a big flat screen TV on there, maybe watch a few films just with all of my vehicles laid out and a story behind those vehicles. But would I want it to actually ride? Would I want any of those to ride or drive? No, because after riding that classic 500, even though it's not that old, it feels like an old bike. It's too difficult. It's too much hard work. I now wouldn't buy a bike to ride that's older than a 2008 model because I have to have, for every day running and riding, that, that reliability. So Dow, 100% I would buy one of those vehicles and I would think of it not as a vehicle to use, but I would think of it as a work of art and as, as a, a piece of nostalgia for me to hold on to, for me to enjoy every time I go down for a cup of coffee to look at it. Dowell, grab it, buy one. It'd be an amazing thing to have and send me a pic. I want to see it. This is the final one for the day from Marco. 
Freddy. I'm currently saving cash to get a Continental GT650 and, uh, and that future classic thing got me thinking. Would I, actually better, would I actually be better off getting the Royal Enfield GT650 for being such a good bike? Or rather get the GT535 for being pretty much the last truly old school cafe racer? And along with the classic 500, the last truly old feeling bikes. If you could touch on this in your next video, that'd be awesome. Marco, this is a great point to end, point to end it on, especially now for me coming from the classic 500. This is a very, very simple question to answer now in my eyes. I have no hesitation in answering this. And it will come down to two points, two points. Do you want a motorbike to ride as much as possible and ride without concern? Or do you want a motorcycle to take out more for Sunday ride type, journey, type journeys that will be more hard work, it will cause you more stress, it may have slightly more character, but it will not be the kind of bike that you just want to casually jump on and, and go out in any weather or think, ooh, I'd like to, uh, a continental trip, I'd like to ride down to Germany or go to Spain. You have to really think about it and make sure with these older bikes. And Royal Enfield came on, came on so much between the new generation of bikes that we all know now and that intermittent period of bikes with the likes of the Classic 500, the Royal Enfield GT535. These are the intermittent bikes before Royal Enfield got their reputation for building good, reliable, genuinely modern bikes. So do you want, Marco, a bike for the character, more for the Sunday ride type thing, maybe more as a second bike, or do you want a bike that can easily be used, whether it's commuting, touring, rain, shine, doesn't matter, a bike with no stress or hassle? For me, I'd go for the new bike. I'd go for the GT650 because it's going to be so much easier to live with. Again, let me know your thoughts. We'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. Please do, again, share your comments, your thoughts, get in touch via email. It's all massively appreciated. Have a fantastic week all. I'll speak to you in the next one.